Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Right. Blessed greetings and love. Ross and Stevie, welcome to Bob Radio. How you doing? Greetings in the name of the Most High. Until my simple highly Selassie, the first Jar Rastafari. It's Ross and Stevie giving mad love out to Carlos Culture on Boom. Bob Radio, Reggae and Coastal Jams. Boom! Yeah, that's what's going on, all right? So, Ross and Stevie, you are live in Colorado, um, and Ross and Stevie has been involved in reggae music 30, 40 years uh, as a promoter, as a, a band leader, um, radio guy. MC, you name it, Rasa Stevie, you, you've been there in the reggae side of the uh, world, right? I've pretty much touched every aspect of reggae music that I possibly could um, because I gained so much from John Music and Liberty of Rastafari that set me on the path that I've done everything I can to give forward to the m- movement that gave me so much. You know what I'm saying, King? Yeah, yeah. So how did you get how did you get started in the movement? How did you get forward in the movement? How, what uh, what were some of the leading things that got you involved into citing up Rastafari and reggae music? Well, you know, I grew up in West Texas, Carlos, and okay. um, when I was uh, time, I'm the fifth of five kids. And when it came time for me to go to summer camp, my parents, who were not hippies, my dad turned to me and said, do you want to go to summer camp or do you want to go to rock concerts? And I said, I want to go to rock concerts. Mm -hmm. I was 10, so this was 1970, and I saw Three Dog Night and Rod Stewart and Leon Russell and a lot of those bands like that, and and I was always a fan of the music first. I was the kid waiting at the elevator to get an autograph. So, you know, music (laughs) hit me hard, you know, just as a little kid. Like, I remember when I opened the door to the limousine for Leon Russell, and he walked out and stepped on my foot. And I could get into the elevator because my dad would rent us hotel rooms at the Hilton, you know, right across the the venue, so no one else could get up the elevator, but I could get up the elevator. So I kind of got that that inside part of the fandom, you know, getting an autograph and reasoning with the artist and just being that kid. And then... You know, through that time and time, I went to school in Boulder in 1980, and a friend of mine said, dude, as much herb as you smoke and as much as you like, like music, you got to check out this music called reggae. And I said, what is it? And he <laughs> said, dude, trust me, check this out. And he gave me a big old pile of albums, and I made this 45-minute cassette called Smoking Reggae Jams. Okay. And it was Gregory Isaacs and Culture and Black Yahuru, and I picked out all the ganja smoking songs, and mm-hmm. that was my jam for years. And then in 1982, I took a radio class at CU Boulder and became a DJ. 
Okay. And when I was the first DJ, I had a metal show called Blood Cold Steel, and my DJ name was Sarson Kitch. Okay, I'm telling the real story now. And so I uh, had this. I started in radio then, and when I moved to Telluride in 1983. You know, metal was cool and everything, but it really wasn't the vibe. Everybody was deadheads. And by that point, you know, I'd been really listening to the music. And reggae had just, reggae music, and it just, the message started really speaking to me about natural liberty and about righteousness. And, right. You know, and all these things that really penetrated my soul. I had this job dishwashing at night so I could ski every day. And I had uh -huh. my own little ghetto blaster. And I'd put in my reggae cassettes and just bust reggae for eight hours a night, you know, four nights a week. <laughs> and through that, the music just took over my soul. And so by five months into that, me and a friend started a radio program on KOTO Telluride, which is a community radio in the center of our culture in Telluride. And we did the Dead or Dread. So he'd play a 15-minute Dead jam, and I'd play three reggae songs. It was a oh, midnight nice. show. And then after the April came, the station manager offered me to do my own show, and I started the Heartbeat of Zion. Wow. And uh, that would have been 1984, and like, uh, let's call it May 1984, and that's where the Heartbeat Design started. It was Tuesday night from 9 to midnight, and that's when I really went, you know, deep into the music and the culture, and then mm -hmm. by 85, I'd thrown the coma away and did my first maiden voyage to Jamaica to reggae sunsplash for six weeks <laughs> by myself, and, you know, oh, I really learned about weeks? the whole thing, and... Six weeks yeah, in Jamaica. Uh, Whoa, I, that's a long time. I had, for a, the first I had trip. a three week ticket. Carlos, I had a three week ticket. And when I got to Miami, I counted up my money and I immediately changed my plane ticket to six weeks before I even landed in Yard. Oh, man. You said the other way around. Yeah, no one, I couldn't tell anybody. There was no cell phones back then. So everybody, I just didn't come home after three weeks. And they're like, dude, he's staying in Jamaica forever. And I showed back <laughs> up. Everyone was really excited that the show would continue. <laughs> But, you know, that time in Jamaica was a real eye-opener for me because I, you know, I was living on no money at all. I had $600 to my name when I landed on the island. I stayed for six weeks. So, you know, I, I was... Very, um, I have a very similar story, but keep going, yeah. I was, I was super frugal, and so I was really... I was looking always for a place to camp, and, you know, many different Rastas took me in and, and let me camp, and they said things to me like, Jamaica doesn't need more Rasta. Go home and be Rasta. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I was really not happy at what they said. But mm -hmm. over time, I really understood what they were saying to the eye. Okay. That, you know, this is a worldwide culture and we need ambassadors all over the world. Jamaica don't need more Rasta Stevies. They got plenty of Rasta Stevie, you know. You need to go yeah. home to your own country and do your works. And and that's where, you know, things really started to, to pick up steam when I realized the, the fullness of what I was dealing with and that mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, chosen to... to spread the doctrine of Rastafari through nice. this wonderful, blessed music we call reggae music, and that, you know, took it to the next level. Amazing. Totally, totally true. And living in Jamaica, listening to the music, and actually living the life of a sufferer, you get so much more appreciation for the music, and you can feel the words of the music more. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I call it the difference of having a rental car and riding the bus. Yeah. When oh, you're yeah. on the minibus, bro, you, oh, yeah. you, I mean, you're one stuck stop. in there with everybody. One I mean, <laughs> one-stop drive up. And, I mean, I had the police pull us over and pull me and a friend out that I'd met on in Jamaica and, like, planted ganja on us and tried to take us to jail for it, and I had to stand my ground as a young roster. Mm -hmm. yeah. I had plenty of experience, Carlos, where yeah. 
I was really feeling the, the, what the Jamaican people go through. I mean, I'm still a privileged white man, for sure. Yeah. But at the same time, I was feeling some of the struggle. And, and you know, That's the message and the divides and the music, you know, the, the, the whole thing together just had a major impact on the eye. And when I got forward to Telluride, you know, I was really serious about the thing. You know, me, Carlos, I came home with more records than I could carry. <laughs> and I started just busting those records. And back then, the owner of Rick's Cafe was vacationing in Telluride and heard my show and called me and said, wow. Like, who are you? Where'd you get all this music? Like, what's what's up? Like, you're yeah. playing harder stuff than I hear in Jamaica. And so I made like 20 cassettes and mailed them down to Rick's Cafe to, for them to play them. And then nine wow. months later, I got seven of them back in the mail. <laughs> Freaking, the, uh, I guess the post people in Jamaica poached like, you know, more than half of them and sent the rest back to me because I guess it wasn't able to be delivered or some kind of crazy. Right. But I thought it was yeah, really the funny they kept them. And I was like, I was like, cool, they kept some of the music for them to listen to. I'm like, good, it's still reaching Jamaica. I don't know if it ever reached Rick's, but it, it reached somebody. And I was like, as long as they get the music, I don't care. You know, he who have ears to hear, let them hear it. Like, that's that right. That's right. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you, you're, you, you continued doing radio for years, and then when did you start your band, 8750? When did you say, okay, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to keep on doing radio, but I also want to get into the live side of reggae music. So... Tell us about eighty-seven fifty and how that happened. Well, that was a that was a moment in my life where I was like, we were idealistic twenty-year-olds in Telluride, and we thought we were gonna like live off the grid and not be part of Babylon system. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were all eating off the diesel trucks. It was a little hypocritical, but we were young and ambitious and mm -hmm. idealistic. And so I got to this point, Carlos, where I was like, okay, I'm either gonna move out of my house and move into the woods and be a woodsy mm -hmm. and just ski and work and do my thing. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to embrace the modern world. And I sat, you know, forward with myself. And, and this is after I'd sighted Rastafari through, uh, through my time in Telluride. I was, the Selassie, I kept coming to me and I kept saying, why me? A white Texan? Like, why me? And I was just really questioning the thing. And, and then a lot of mystical things happened. And then one of them was I was in New Mexico with my partner at the time. And she was raised as in the summertime there next to that cathedral where when the sun sets, the image of Jesus appears in the wall wow. of the, the apparition in the wall of the, you know, cathedral built in the 1500s or whatever. So mm -hmm. we get there and I pull out the chalice and I lick it up and mm -hmm. I'm well iron ready, you know, and as mm -hmm. it starts to happen, I see Jesus from the top of his head to his eyes, but as soon as I get to the eyes, the image turned to a profile, and it was his majesty. Nice. And it happened over and over, and my emperor said, what's up? I've never, you're so quiet. What's, what, what's going on? Why yeah. are you so quiet? And I said, well, I, I, you're not going to believe what I'm seeing. She seeing cried, the signs. Cried. And I said, I'm seeing his majesty. And she said, what? And I'm like, it's Haile Selassie. You don't see him? And she's like, no, I don't see him. So at this point, I'm outside of my car pointing at his crown and his eyes and his nose and all these people like hiding their children and like, what's up with this crazy half-dreaded, you know, Rothklot? And yeah. I was just raving about his majesty. And then it was like, I still couldn't really make forward sense of it, Carlos. So I was sitting at home one night after work and doing my dishwashing shift. I was sitting at home just agitating. And I just said, you know, Selassie, if this is true and this is real and right, I need a, a, a sign. Not that I'd already had, hadn't had a sign, yeah. but... I said, I need a sign, and I blew out a big cloud of smoke, and in that cloud of smoke, I saw his master's face looking at me, and, and he looked at me and just, like, bowed his head in an anointment. And at that point, nice. I just said, okay, 
this is real, this mm-hmm. is right. And when that, from that moment forward, Carlos, there was a complete relaxation and all animosity, anxiety, and questions wow. were gone, and it was all answers and, and motivation. So Amazing. from that point on, things really started to change. So I was in the process of like, am I going to be a wizard? Am I going to join the world? And I decided, you know, I've got too much to give. Mm-hmm. to just start to end the woods by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a modern man. I was born in these times. I'm college educated. Mm-hmm. I'm a privileged white person. Mm-hmm. You know, I have these opportunities that aren't available to other people, and I have a responsibility in, right. in creation to do Jaws works, you know, yeah. that others maybe can't do. So I embraced the culture and, and the whole mission, and within six months I was an elected official on the Telluride Town Council. That led to a, a cameo in a Greg Stump ski movie called The Blizzard of Oz in 1988. And that led to, um, a, a, throughout the ski industry, I became a ski icon. I became a, a household <laughs> name in the ski industry. Oh, awesome. So during during that whole time, um, this guy moved to Terrod named Dave Christensen. We call him Basie. So okay. Trina said, hey, my friend Basie's coming. He had this band called Black Star in Madison, Wisconsin. He's the only white boy in this all-black Jamaican rockers band from the 70s. And he's moving to Telluride to live in the mountains and ski. And so I saw him on the bakery porch, and I said, hey, man, I'm going to see you. Who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm Dave. And I said, oh, you're Trina's friend. He's like, yeah, like, let's go to my house and smoke chalice. Yeah. So I immediately brought him over. We smoked chalice. And then um, at the same time, Jeff Stump who was Greg Stump's brother who made the ski movie and Greg skied in all of them. They're all um, like ski mogul pros from back in the day. And so Jeff Very said, good. hey, man, let's put together a night bingy. So we all came together and did a bingy. We chanted and played drums wow. and we were just on the vibes. And then Stumper said, well, I have an acoustic guitar. Why didn't anybody bring instruments? And Basie said, well, I have a keyboard. And because there was already this kid there named Doug who had a bass, and we said, well, next strong, let's meet. I don't deal with the week. Mm-hmm. Next strong, let's yeah. meet, and everybody bring instruments. Mm-hmm. And then I played bingy drum and bass had a little keyboard, this little, like, you know, cheesy-ass $20 keyboard. Mm-hmm. And then we had the, we had the uh, acoustic guitar and the bass, and we made a joyful noise. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And then Basie said, well, you're the drummer. And I said, dude, I can, you know, I can play, you know, Ego Jimbe at the Rainbow Gathering, and I can play a little bingy, but I'm not a drummer. He said, yeah, you are, dude. Just go like this. Boom. Boom. And I was like, oh, I can do that. So I bought a drum kit. Next session, I was on drums, Basie on keyboard, Dougie on bass. Wow. Guitar. And uh, we started um, making music, and we never did anybody else's songs because we weren't about to you know, be this white reggae Rastafarian lovers of music and go out there and murder and slaughter these, Covers, you know, yeah. masters music, you know, right. it just couldn't, anything couldn't work. So we wrote a whole bunch of dubs, just, you know, instrumental stuff. Mm-hmm. Six weeks after picking up the drum kit, we did our first gig. Wow. We set up in the, uh, we set up at the Koto Halloween party and Ralph Dinosaur, the rock band, was doing their thing. And when they took a break, they did the costume contest. Instead of Ralph jumping right in, he just stopped and backed up. We had already set up our equipment. We pulled our black sheet off the equipment, mm-hmm. and we, you know, our costume was reggae band. It was it's a stupid costume, you know, the reggae band. We're like, yeah, okay, wait till midnight. We pull this shit. Yeah. And so we uh, we pulled it out, and mm-hmm. uh, we started this our little song called Last Second. It had three parts and an intro and an outro, and 
We started kicking it in, and the whole place, like 600 people, rushed to the corner. Where's that reggae vibe coming from? It's reggae. <laughs> and everyone was just, you know, just so entranced by the music. And so me, I, you know, as I, as the drummer, I'm seeing the backs of all my musicians, and I'm seeing the faces of all the people. Mm-hmm. And that image right there, Carlos, is something that, that was a life-transforming experience for the eye. I saw everybody like trying to get underneath someone's legs and over the top to see where this reggae was coming from. And there was this <laughs> excitement and this, and this vibe of like the reggae. And I was sitting there and I'm, get, I'm covered in chills right now. Uh-huh. I was sitting there and I made the decision right there, this is what I'm going to do. Okay. This is what I'm going to do. So that was October 88. By 90, 91, we were the Ski Town Reggae Band. I bought us a school bus. We bought a sound <laughs> system. We... We in court. We uh, I, I coerced all my friends to be the sound man, and you know, <laughs> you know, can you sing? And we put it all together and and started touring. And then by '92, we cut the record in a couple studios in Denver. I took it to Jim Fox at Line and Fox Studios, who did Black and Who and Israel Vibration. Yeah, yeah. He's a super don. I flew out there with the two-inch tapes, and me and him sat down for three days, nights, and mixed the whole thing down and did dub versions and. I brought really? it home. We made the glass mask. You couldn't burn a CD at home at this time. Mm-hmm. So we made the glass master, and I sent it off to the press, and they turned it into a 1,000 CDs, and Andrew was our bass player at the time, and so he had a CAD experience, so he did the graphics, and Killer. we put our album together and released the record in 92, and it was voted the number one U.S. bass independent release for 93 by Reggae Report. Wicked. And uh, by that point, we were doing like 150 some odd dates a year. Um, that was um, that was 93. So we left Telluride May 15th. We drove to the Bay Area. We did a couple of gigs in Santa Cruz and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Went all, we did gigs all the way down to San Diego. Yep. We went over to Arizona. We did like two weeks in Arizona during my graduation time. You and played today, down here for me, yeah. Yeah, and then we, well, you weren't involved in the thing yet. We played at Winston's, and okay. we played at Blind Melon, and then uh, we got a gig opening up for the Cardiff Reefers at the okay. Belly Up, so those are all in your That's head. what it was, that's what it we was. We played the White House in Laguna Beach. Um, we got totally worked all over L.A., but we did it, and then we went <laughs> all the way up to Northern California. We played, like, uh, Laytonville, hum- uh, Garberville. Awesome. We did all those dates. We did... Oh, uh, we did Oregon, Washington, went to Canada Chilling. for a month. So then fun. we came forward and did a whole nother swing from Seattle all the way down to San Diego again. And then got back to Telluride on September 26th mm-hmm. and played the One World Music Festival with Jimmy Cliff, Ziggy Marley, Ola Tunji, and all of those guys. And that was like the, the crowning glory of the end of our tour. So. You know, we got to play the Catalyst in Santa Cruz. We got to play. So um, you, you guys were eighty-seven fifty. Berkeley, eighty-seven fifty, the highest band in the world, right? Well, we got dubbed the world's highest reggae band, and we put that on the cover of our record because eight thousand seven hundred and fifty feet above sea level. And the reason I named the band eighty-seven fifty was being from Texas. When you cross into the into a town, you see that population on the sign. Mm-hmm. Well, in Gonjurado, you see the elevation, and it always struck me. So we're coming up with names for the band. There was all these Zion Heights and all these kind of Rasta names, and mm-hmm. none of it really stuck. And then I just came up with 8750 because we were a Telluride band. It all happened to us in Telluride. We're all white kids from mm-hmm. 
you know, mm-hmm. the suburbs or small towns all over America gathered together to make this joyful noise. And without Terrorad and the support of the Terrorad community and the message that we learned in Terrorad, we wouldn't be who we are. So I named the band 8750. I was the booking agent, the promoter. I did all the interviews. I uh, made I You were the main man, for sure. I made the album. I, I made it all happen. Yeah, and it was you, a, did, you, you know, definitely and it was did. A joy. And this was... And Carlos, this was before any internet and stuff, so I was on the road booking yeah. the band by payphone. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I mean, this was crazy, crazy, crazy. And someone in California gave me a cassette that had the sound of a pack bell accepting a quarter. <laughs> so I got a Walkman and I got one little speaker. I, I broke the headphone thing off and I got one of them. And I would, it would say, please deposit $2.30 for the next three minutes. And I'd get out my little cassette, and I'd hit the button. Oh, wow. And otherwise, we'd have never had the money to be oh, able to man. do what we were doing. That's and amazing. Whoever that was, and I probably shouldn't be saying this on the air because this is a major felony. But, <laughs> and then I ran the whole tour and booking the tour because, you know, in those days, I, I couldn't book September in in May before we left yeah so I had to be booking the rest of the tour along the way plus I was setting up radio interviews like when we got to town Carlos we got a radio interview on the 94.9 or whatever the big station was 91 yeah I yeah and I was the uh, I was also the entertainment writer for the Terrod newspaper so I contacted all the newspapers and I got them to write an article about us because you know we had a story uh-huh. oh definitely you know and and in and, and, and the ski towns we were the ski town reggae band and the Blizzard of Oz was playing on every screen everywhere we went and people would be looking at the movie and look over at the band and look at the movie and go that's Jeff Stump and Ross and Stevens ski movies and we'd say yeah that's us so we, you know <laughs> shameless promotion we used that to promote our thing which you know, gave us an edge over everyone else. And in those days, there weren't reggae bands in every town. So like, a lot of the places we went, we were the first reggae band they'd ever seen. Right. Like, they'd never even heard of Bob Marley, and we show up. Right. You know, seven, eight, white dreads from Telluride singing this original music. And, you know, a lot of us <laughs> had been on dead tour. We knew the thing. So we had, like, 60-some-odd tunes that we were rotating. So every night was a different show. You never got the same tune twice. You never knew what we were going to play. We kept the people hungry. Love it. We had our promotion together. We had our merch together. We had a t-shirt. You know, we had our CD and I hired a merch person to come along with us. And, you know, it was a ground roots thing, dude. And it just came from the love of John, the love of music. And, you know, it really kicked up a lot of steam. I'm going to I guess about 1990, we saw Israel Vibration in Aspen. Afterwards, we were reasoning with the man Apple Gabriel, John rest his soul. Yeah. And Apple turned to us and said, you know, you guys have the ability to play where Israel Vibration can. We have needs that must be met, and you don't. So you need to take this music to the places where Israel Vibration can't penetrate. So we saw that as an anointment, mm-hmm. and that's when it really, we really started putting our all into it. Like, we have to do this. This is the most important thing in our lives that we could ever do. So mm-hmm. we were wow. really driven. I'm super organized. I had experience in radio, you know, newspaper. Mm-hmm. I had all the, the, all the components were there, and we just went out there and crushed it. You know, and back then it was Inca Inca, Cardiff Reefers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could name the bands in America. It was a handful of bands. It yeah. wasn't like tons Killer of other bands like it is now. And Killer Bees, they were my homies. You know, they'd come to tell you right. I, I, I went to Sunsplash 1987 to see them. And Blue Rhythm Band. You know, there was Blue Rhythm Band. You know, but Blue Rhythm was a movement and a force and had an album and everything. But 
they never could really tour so tough. You know right. what I mean? They kind of broke up right as all that happened. Mm -hmm. And and but there was a few American reggae bands, but the ones that were really touring were out of San Diego, the Cardiff Reapers, and out of the Bay Area, Inca yeah. Inca, which became Dub Nation. Okay, that was Frank and all those guys. Okay, and so and then you know Boogie Brown band, Clinton Fearn was out of Seattle. Yep, yep. And then there was a band called Unshakable Race out of Oregon, wow. and those were our colleagues. So okay. as we would bounce around, we would cross paths with them and. You know, me, Carlos, I shared my whole book, my whole book tour and booking sure. with every single reggae band I met. Yeah, man. That's you how know, we did that it. That's how to, we did it back in the day. Yeah. That's how we did it. Well, it was always collaboration. Yeah. We always worked together. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it, it, we were collaborators, not competitors. Yeah. And, you know, then when, when 8750 stopped playing in uh, 96, I followed the band. Um, got married and moved to Durango and found my queen and got married. And by that point, the thing had changed a lot. We were getting like $500 to $1,000 a gig, and then it dropped down to like 700 and 300 No. And so the, 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 the club thing changed drastically. And, yeah. and venues all of a sudden didn't have a place for us to stay anymore. And it was just changing. And my life was changing, so I folded the band. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I turned it into a booking agency called Highest Region Talent. Yes. So at the time, like in 95, 96, I'd spread it around so much, all of a sudden, Ika Mouse and Black Uhuru were showing up at the same clubs that we played. <laughs> so who's going to pay $5 to $87.50 when you can pay $10 and see Ika Mouse? Yeah. So I kind of marketed our band out of the scene, kind of in a way. Okay. But it, I, didn't feel, I didn't feel no way. And uh, so I set up a, a whole uh, winter reggae tour, and I contacted all the clubs and said, every... In, in, Bale, it was on Mondays, and Tarot, it was Tuesdays, and Durango was Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, I said, every strong, I'll bring your reggae band. So mm -hmm. I contacted all the reggae bands, and I had, like, the Arc Sick. Band and Route One, which is some remnants of, 80s, of uh, Killer Bees and wow. um, Clinton Fearn and the Boogie Brown Band. And so I contacted all these bands. I said, look, I can give you 10 dates in 14 days. All of them have lodging. All of them have sound systems. Sick. Just come and play. Sick. And so starting in January, February, March, we did this uh, this whole tour thing, and I had it all set up and just kept the reggae music playing because we built a following and people were expecting reggae, and if 8750 didn't come, they wouldn't have any reggae. <laughs> and I was like, that can't work. That can't work. That, that can't go on. That can't go on. That can't work, man. <laughs> so I set the whole thing up, and I, you know, I pumped all these reggae bands into this tour thing, and made that happen at the same time, you know, the bigger venues, I started connecting them with the Mighty Diamonds and Israel Vibration and mm -hmm. Joseph Hill and Culture and all the legends. Yeah. And uh, so they were so they were playing gigs. We had, the, you know, Once a Strong thing at every club, you know, all over Don Dorado. And uh, we just, you know, kept the thing going, you know, and it's a whole, and I never stopped radio. Right. all this, I never stopped the heartbeat of Zion. Right. I would always retrain some youth mind to take over if I and I wasn't there to right. keep the reggae music playing. Yeah. And so between all that, you know, I, I, I continue. And then I also, uh, during 8750 times, kind of being the front man and drummer, I'm not really the front man. I'm not the singer, dude. I don't play guitar. Yeah. But... I do have a very captivating personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have, have a presence. A you know, when you, you know, when you can, we know when you step in the room. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I may not be the best, but I'm always the loudest. Yeah. Um, so I would, I have a real knack for being able to grab people's attention and bring it. So I used to leave the drum kit and do, you know, front the band and do my songs because you know everybody had their songs. So. 
in 8750, we had five songwriters. So everybody yeah. had their songs that they sang. Mm -hmm. And so all mine were kind of like dance hall flavor, you know, because I'm not a singer, I'm a toaster, you know. So yeah. I'd be, I'd do my more of a chanter, yeah. I'm going to go to the store, like Donna Library, mm -hmm. label after label, tell me Donna, crazy, mind you, this year, the label definitely does. Putting a couple of we not want in the deli, because that's rough, you know, them kind of thing. Yeah. And so I would come out from behind the drum kit, and really stir up the place for the last song of the set mm -hmm. or the first song of the second set. Okay. So we'd either captivate the people at the end of the set so that they wouldn't so they wouldn't leave. Right. Or we would crush them at the first of the set so they'd feel like they had to stay. They had to stay because more you know, I know the business follows <laughs> really well. At yeah. Seven fifty. We would come to town and we're employees of a club. We're yeah. not holier than now. You know, we're employees, so it's 9.30 to one thirty, and they're expecting to have all that time filled up. Yeah. So what we do is an hour and 50-minute set, 20-minute set break, and another hour and 50. We yeah. always started our second set, Crazy. you know, always about 11.30, because if you started after midnight, the people then go home. And yeah. I knew that. So our second set would start about 11.20, and then we'd play right till one thirty. Yeah. And that... that little formula right there kept people in the club kept them drinking mm -hmm. kept them buying drinks so the club wanted us you know to come again yeah yeah and I you know I played those aspects of the business really hard because you know a lot of artists would come in and be you know you know, prima donnas and hold now and demand this and demand that. Oh, right. We came there to give, not to take. Yeah. We didn't come there with expectations. Right. We came there to create expectations from the people. Absolutely. And, you know, being going to dead shows and being involved in the reggae music business and seeing how there was a lot of things in reggae music that weren't uh, being a type of vibes where the club owners were all excited. Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. We were on time professional we did our own promoters before the name street team this stuff. yeah yeah so we you did you, all that ourselves yeah that's 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 awesome you know that's the part that in my opinion what american bands got right what jamaican's band got wrong american bands got did the business better and when they got to the venue whatever was on the contract was on the contract wasn't no renegotiating this and renegotiating that and this isn't good enough and that's not good enough and I need this to like, like no you know and then the cool thing about the American bands is that, that you have a, a built-in following you know the friends the girlfriends the girlfriends girlfriends their friends you know it's and, and um, that's what some of the plus the American bands the this new wave, I guess, ten-year-old wave now, but this wave of uh, Cali roots music or American-based reggae music. You know what I mean? I mean, Carlos, they call it Cali roots for a reason because mm -hmm. it is roots. Mm -hmm. Because all of us in Asatica, mm -hmm. I don't call it America. Mm -hmm. There's nothing merry about America, but mm -hmm. in Asatica, <laughs> all of us, we, we, it was a, like a, a resurgence of the roots in the business aspect, and also, more importantly, in the music. And here's why I say that, Carlos. In the Cali Roots scene, there's artists that are crafting their own original songs and singing their original lyrics. In Jamaica, it's a producer's game. The producer makes the rhythm, and he goes and pays Sizzler, Anthony B., whoever, to voice on top of it. Right. And I love the rhythm. It's my favorite part of reggae music is the, is the rhythm. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's... The, the, I love the rhythm juggling, too. I love the rhythm juggling, too. But I hear exactly what you're saying. That's a great distinction to me. Well, it was... Well, the, the American-based bands, and it's called Cali Roots, but, you know, so Jaws from the East Coast and so's um, Stick Figure. But anyway, we'll call it Cali Roots. And I always looked at that as roots because we took it forward to the roots of what made reggae successful partially. 
it wasn't the sufferers music anymore mm -hmm. but it was it was respectful mm -hmm. it had proper business ethics it had proper promotion yeah we didn't like you said we didn't change the contract mm -hmm. we signed a deal we gave our word and that's what we delivered mm -hmm. and the song crafting became the biggest part of the roots american movement was crafting original songs with your original lyrics and that's been you know almost lost in yard music um right. there's still original lyrics there's still original song but they're not one thing like it was bands third world was a band right you know what i mean I, yeah that is I mean. was a band yeah you know and then in jamaica you kind of lost the band thing we've got earth cry now which is a great band right right but they're few and far between yeah not it's that mostly many. artists and a producer thing we had a little resurgence there for I mean, a while it, we know? had a little resurgence there Pentatook, dub tonic crew raging fire but now it's yep. just basically earth cries only dub tonic crew does stuff Survivor. here and there but but um earth cries like one of the ones that are left in that whole resurgence of uh, Jamaican reggae bands, new wave of Jamaican reggae bands. Okay. Absolutely. So. You know, when, when Dubtonic Crew first came through, I latched onto them right away. I got them a gig in, in Durango, and I sat down with Juba, and I said, look, here's how it works in America. And he and him and Kabaka Pyramid, there's a few artists in the last decade or so that have sat down and listened to what I had to say and were really interested yeah. in what I had to say instead of writing me off as a white boy, writing me off as da-da-da-da-da, yeah. blah, 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 Disrespecting all you. that kind of weird Jamaicanism. Yeah. But they sat down and really wanted to know what I had to say about the business, the production, and how to present yourself. And they've been, they were very successful. Dub Tonics went out there and, you know, they worked it for they, years on the road. They were awesome. I loved it. I, I had them on that first tour, too. Yeah, they loved it up 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 with you. They really they talked about it. Um, yeah, they, they're great. So we've talked about the band, and we talked about your 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 booking agency after the band. And so, what are you doing now? What's going on with you now? What, what's what's the well, vibes? During the band time, as I was saying before, you know, I was kind of like the front man, but not the front man of the band. And I learned how to captivate people and how to hold the mic and how to really like be super present. In music, you could have the, you could be Stevie Ray Vaughan of guitar, but if you're not coming from your heart and you don't have your eyes open and you're not attuned to the people and and have that charismatic people kind of persona, you know you can get lost easily. And I was blessed as a Leo with this you know ability to capture the ears. So. I was the MC for the One World Music Festival. It started in '92 mm. and went till 2000. And we in '94 we had Bunny Whaler, Ziggy Marley, uh, Burning Spear, Andrew Tosh, Boom Shaka, James Brown, P Funk. That was one of our shows. So we did these huge shows all over Don Gerardo, and then we took it to Texas. We took it to New Mexico. And it was a big force, and so I would eighty-seven fifty would get you know played at all of them mm -hmm. until we folded. But I kept my I was always the MC. Judd was the promoter, but I was the person who always he would be like, "Dude, I want to get You're the face. Band You're the that everybody in the world wants." Yeah, yeah. and and the, and the consultant behind the things. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. want to bring the reggae band that everybody because wants. Because you know, you, you, you knew. Who else knows more about I reggae in Colorado? Who else knows more about reggae in Colorado than you do at the time? Who did? You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, there, there's, a, there, there's a few of us. I'm not the only one, but I'm the most motivated one. Right. And so I've been to Reggae Sunsplash 85, 86, 87. Yeah. Then I was Okay, well, let's say not the most. Let's say not the most, but one of the most prominent reggae uh, impresarios in Colorado at the time. Yeah. 
Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm, I've always been the, the, the one that's willing to go out of the thing and, and push it as hard as I can. You know, no man is an island. No man stands alone. But, you know, it's up to each individual to, to go as hard as we could. And so, you know, I went to Selassie Centenary and Reggae Sunsplash in 92. And I was so there. by then I'd really brushed up with Jamaica and I, and I knew a lot of people. And so when Judd asked me, who do we bring? I said, Bonnie Whaler. And so he called the booking agent and the booking agent said, you can pay him 40 grand and he won't show up. And yeah. Judd called me back and said, I can't work like that. And I said, dude, don't listen to that guy in Chicago. He didn't know what he's talking about. Okay. He said, well, how do I get him? I said, you go to Jamaica. And he goes, I'm supposed to just go to Jamaica? And I said, dude, no. I'll call Chenna, mm -hmm. and you'll fly into Kingston, and Chenna will meet you there, and Chenna will take you to Bonnie's house, and you tell him what we're doing. Uh -huh. you know, and he'll recognize what we're doing is something that hadn't been done. So we brought Bonnie Whaler out of Jamaica for the first time since those, you know, shows in San Diego and those shows in Madison Square Garden. I mean, Man. Bunny hadn't played out in a decade. Right. And so we paid Bunny 40 grand and he showed up. We flew his 23-person entourage <laughs> to Aspen, Colorado, and, and um, we put him on stage and we brought Roger Steffens in to introduce him as well as me. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Bob Marley overtook Bunny Whaler's body that night, and he'll mm -hmm. tell you the story about it. It was, a, it was one of those moments wow. in reggae and Rastafari that was, like, amazing. And Very awesome. And this double rainbow that would, came up right as Bunny was supposed to go on stage, and yeah. the Solomonic Register came out and did it an instrumental, and the Psalms mm -hmm. joined, and they sang, and, and then all of a sudden, Bunny was nowhere to be found. And so <laughs> oh, Roger Stevens no. went out there again and said, okay, we'll bring Bunny away to the Psalms. One more from the Psalms, you know, and mm -hmm. that went on, like, three times. Yeah, and then finally Roger went went round to the backstage and said and found Bunny with his you know tobacco pipe full of ganja, mm -hmm. looking at this amazing double rainbow, and and he and Roger's like, it's it's time to play, Bunny. I've announced you three times. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, sorry, I you know yeah. I was just in a vibe, and Bunny Whaler came out with the Naya Bingi, and it was amazing. About halfway through the set, my wife saw it. She wasn't my wife at the time, but mm -hmm. my empress saw it. And Bob entered Bunny's body at that show, and wow. all of a sudden, Bunny Whaler did like three or four Bob songs, and it sounded like Bob, and he looked like Bob, and on the video, you freeze frame the moment, and you can see it's not Bunny, it's not Bob, it's the line of Judah in Bunny's face, it's really Jeez. intense, bro, and then afterwards, Roger Steplins was sitting on the bed at the hotel room with Bunny, you know, and they weren't talking, they were just mm -hmm. sitting there, and Bunny was in deep meditation, mm -hmm. and he turned to Roger, and he said, this has never happened to any whaler in the history of the whalers. And then sat there for like another 30 minutes in silence. Wow. And Bonnie Rogers said, Bonnie, what are you talking about? And Bonnie said, you know, my brother came to me and came into me. And, and Roger's like, what? And Bonnie confirmed that he had a spirit possession from Bob Marley that night. Wow. And he did legalize it by Peter Tosh. And it was a moment, bro. And... And um, I got pretty tight with Bunny through all those times when he came to San Diego wow. and he played with, uh, right, that show was an outdoor amphitheater, I think, at uh, San Diego State University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mighty Diamonds, Judy Moat, and uh, the Heptones, I think. It was so killer. Yeah. And then I went up to Santa Cruz and saw him in Berkeley, and I was pretty tough with Bunny at the time. And Wicked. Bunny sat down with me one time and, you know, said how appreciative he was and said, you know, the the success and continued success of reggae music is due to the white American reggae audience. Mm -hmm. That was a showstopper. Mm -hmm. And what he was saying is that now the swing has kind of gone to Europe for the, for the veterans, but for at sure. the time, we were keeping them alive. We were keeping them fed. They weren't getting many stage shows in Jamaica. They weren't getting huge record deals. 
They were touring. Remember the days when Burning Spear toured every year for like a decade, Carlos? Yeah, that was I mean, awesome. It was yeah, I, I, was, I hit a million of those. <laughs> every time they came through, you know, we'd go see three of them. We'd drive wherever to see them. That's yeah. how it was. And, and, you know, for me, Carlos, I've always been a fan. So I was the MC for the One World Music Festival, and I was in Austin where we had Bonnie Whaler, James Brown, and, and P-Funk. And the crowd didn't know if it was a white person show or a black person show, so no one came. We had a venue change in the last three days before the show, and it was mm-hmm. a total controversy. Mm-hmm. But we did the show, and Carol Bruno from Reggae on the River came to the show. Mm-hmm. And she saw me there and said, well, gosh, Stevie, you know, you know, uh, maybe you'd like to come to Reggae on the River sometime. And I was like, well, of course. I've always wanted to go to Reggae on the River, but I was right. always busy touring or being in my own band yeah, or being a politician. Doing your thing. I wasn't a deadhead out there in Cali. I couldn't go, you know? Yeah. And so finally, 87.50 opened up for Third World at the baseball stadium in Boise, Idaho with Unshakable Race. And then we played headline the festival at Sandpoint, Idaho, over the lake with a full moon rising. It was super epic. And then after that, I said, I'm driving to, I'm driving to Reggae on the River. Who wants to go? No one would go. And I said, I'm driving by myself. They drove back to town. I drove to Garberville. Okay. I got there on Friday night camped in my truck, woke up, you know, I had no idea where I was, woke awesome. up on Bob Molly Avenue, right on the river, stepped out of my truck, and was just like, just waking up, Carlos, and up walks Carol Bruno. Wow. And she's like, oh, Stevie, how good to see Reggae on the River? I said, yeah, it's my first time. She's like, you've never been to Reggae on the River? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, maybe you'd like to introduce an act. And I said, Carol, I'd love to, but, you know, I've got this little GA armband. I showed her my armband. She's like, come with me. I mean, Carlos, I didn't lock my truck. I didn't do anything. I just... <laughs> immediately shadowed Carol. I had yeah. brushed my teeth. I had changed my yeah. clothes. It didn't yeah. matter, dude. Backstage so fast? Okay, Carol yeah. I'm, we, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> and and so she uh, she walked me into backstage at Reggae in the River, and next thing you know, I had armbands up to my elbow mm-hmm. and a bag of ganja and a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. And she said, hang out backstage, you know, and if, and if we need you, we'll let you know. Wicked. I mean, because I literally ran to my truck, yeah. brushed my teeth, just brushed mm-hmm. up real quick, grabbed my chalice, Put on my red, gold, and green because, you know, Ross Christmas tree. I've always got on the most red, green, and gold of anybody. And so I put on all my finest, you know, Saturday, you know, my Saturday duds, you know, uh-huh. my duds for the Sabbath. And yeah. I ran to backstage. Then I got to backstage. I'm just cool. Yeah. It was like casually walking around and being cool. But, dude, I mean, I ran there like a schoolboy. Like, yeah. I was so excited. Yeah. And then I was just hanging, and I went into the food court, and Joseph Hill and Culture were there. And I just promoted three shows in Gonjurado with them. and. Mm-hmm. Joseph Hill starts slamming his fist on the table saying, my MC is here, you know, and he's like, you know, you're my MC, and I'm like, Joseph, be cool, dude, I'm a guest, like, I'm not your MC, they've got great MCs like Cliff Dankin and Robert Harvey Bowers and these super dons, you know, and and he said, no, we won't have it, you know, we just won't have it, you're my MC, I'm like, dude, just chill, like, I'm trying to be cool here, and we laughed, and Style Scott turned to me and said, Ross, you're a head damage, man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> and then I was hanging backstage, and then uh, the production manager came up and said, hey, um, Carol said that you might be available to in- introduce the next artist for us. And I'm like, mm-hmm. sure, who is it? Mm-hmm. And they said, and, and Corbett Harvey Bowers, who had the reggae nucleus newspaper out of the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, I know Harvey. Do it and had a sore throat. Yeah, Harvey. And so he had a sore throat, and he told the production manager to find a different MC, and he came up and said, would you like to do this next act? And I said, sure, who is it? And they go, Joseph Hill and Culture. Perfect. And I was like, that's it, dude. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, his his group, um, what do they call it? Not Dub Nation. Uh, Dub, oh, God, I can't believe I can't remember. But anyway, I was real tight with them. 
So I got up and I introduced proper. I introduced the backing band. They play like tree tune them. Okay. And then I jumped on stage and I said, come out of the campground, come off the river, mm. come out of the vendor spot. This is yeah. the time. It was like four or five in the afternoon. Yeah. And I said, this is the time, you know, for the prophecy revealed. They're ready for 2-7's class. Joseph Hill. And I didn't even get out of culture. And he came running from side stage and grabbed that vocal mic out of my hand before I could even say culture. It was right up at the front of the stage. Don't we bomb, bomb away? When it t- and people went nuts. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Love it. Like, it was divine timing. Love and it. so after that, all these Bay Area kingpins are backstage, and they're like looking at me, Carlos, mm-hmm. like, yeah. who the heck mm-hmm. is this? Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, you know, trying to be mm-hmm. cool and casual, yeah. and they're looking me up and looking me down and staring at mm-hmm. me and stuff, and like right in my face, you know, and yeah. they're like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I'm Master mm-hmm. Steve, I'm tell you about it, blah, 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 and they're like, okay. Okay. They're like yeah, uh-huh. And they're like, you know what? And I go, what? And they go, you know, you're good. And I said, well, thank you. And they said, no, seriously, you're really good. Right. And I said, if you think so, tell Carol. Yeah. And so all these important people in the Bay Area and the Humboldt music scene went up to Carol the next day and said, hey, that, you know, that kid from Colorado's good. Like, I, yeah. I like his energy. I like what he does. And Carol came up to me on Sunday and said, I've never gotten so many comments about an MC before. Maybe you'd like to come back next year and introduce a few more acts. And I'm yeah. like, yes, please, thank you. Yeah. And from then on, Carlos, that was 95. And from then on, I did not miss a reggae on the river. Wicked. I was there no matter what. Right. And that went on through 2015. Even when I was living in Costa Rica, I moved to Costa Rica for five years. And when I was living there... I, you know, one time I flew by myself to the bay, and my buddy picked me up and took me to Mendo and gave me his truck, and I drove myself to Reggae on the River, and I did my thing, you know? Yeah. And and I, it was too important to not be there. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? I, it was too well, here, important you know, I, 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 I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. So, uh, obviously, Reggae on the River, uh, amazing mecca for reggae music for many many years 33 year run 34 year run something like that and uh, I've been there many times you I, you missed but here's the problem that I had with Reggae on the River a lot of the times with Reggae on the River it was the same time as Sunsplash or Reggae Sunfest I could only go to one I would say to myself can only, you can only go to one, Carlos. You might, might as well just go to Jamaica. So I missed a lot of those Sunfests because sure. I had to go to a lot of those uh, Reagan Rivers. I had to go to Sunfests and stuff, which was obviously awesome. Yeah, the timing awesome. was yeah, the, the timing was hard, you know. But for me, like I could go to Sunfest and be some Johnny Go whatever in the crowd and be stomp trampled in the stampede of Jamaican, mm-hmm. or I could be ruling Reggae on the river. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on I that. Dude, I, feel I knew. I've been wanting to go to Reagan River for a decade before I reach. You know I what I mean? You. I feel when you. I finally reached and Carol Bruno came with so much love for me and respect and honor and dude, people can say whatever they want. That woman treated me with so much well, respect. She was great. And she was great. She was awesome to me. Always transparent. She did me right every time. Um, she hooked me up with uh, we used to all stay at the um at the little yoga thing, which was kind of yoga thing, it was this like kind of summer camp kind of vibe. But okay. Doctor Dread would stay there, and Split Skankin and Robert Rankin, yeah, and, you know the crew. All those kings would stay there. The crew, man, Doug mm-hmm. Wint, all these yeah. names that you know. I used to, I used to take their cassettes from their radio shows and just worship those cassettes in the eighties. You know, yeah, man, they were like the best, biggest DJs ever in history. And you know, and here I am, like their colleague now. 
Yeah. They were all like, bro, you're the best on stage. Like, you're the best MC here, you know. I was like, bro, you, you know, you, you've got, you've got a certain thing, man. And we're keeping you. We're not letting you go. And I'm like, don't worry. You don't have to keep me. I mean, I leave, you know, I'm here. Carol <laughs> treated me with such respect and honor. And it was one of the greatest opportunities in my life in reggae music was to be able to reach the people on that level. Well, and to be able to be a transparent, you know, voice of reggae and get people excited. Yeah. Like the best MCs do what the the job that the MC does, which is the best job they can do, is give the people a little information about what they're going to see and get them excited. So when the artist hits the stage, their hands are in the air, their mouths and ears and eyes are wide open. They're like screaming and ready. And then the artist comes on, and there's already such a vibe going on. That the, they perform at their top level of performance because they don't have to build anything because I've already been out there and, and built the enthusiasm and the excitement that it, all they do is they come on and they just continue that excitement and it just, you know, a great MC, Carlos, can yeah. really make a show great and Definitely. a bad MC can really damage and keep the show. The, and, and, and then the, and a good MC can keep the energy going between bands and even during those segues. Because no MC between segues is an absolute killer, but having an MC, even though you're going to go into death space, it still helps a lot. Well, you know what? What I did too with Reggae on the River is when the set was over, I told everybody who they saw. It drives me crazy, Carlos. I'll see these MCs in the band leads, and they'll even say who you just saw. I'm like, dude, you need to say it, and you, and, and you say <laughs> yeah. things three times. For sure. And you always make the last thing you say the most important because people remember the last thing they've heard. Absolutely. So Reg in the River, you know, I would uh, talk to the stage or the road manager while the band's on stage and say, hey, we have a merch booth and you can do a meet and greet, sell records. Yeah. Like, oh, really? Great. You know, so I'd say, you know, that was Lucky Dubay. If you'd like to meet him in the flesh in 20 minutes, meet at the merchandise tent. And they would have a line out to the campground. Yeah, and I would always create it, and I would just create it. I, no yeah. one told me to do it. No one That's asked. What's up, I didn't man. Ask was okay. Ask for, for you know, ask That's for forgiveness, up. not permission. And I would just take control of things like that and just make those things happen through you know whoever was. You're in a position right to make it happen. You make it happen. That's what's up. Make man. it happen because then the artist can meet the and can meet the fans because I'm the fan. I'm the guy who was always the guy trying to get the autograph, like Leon Russell in the elevator. I'm the kid who always wanted to get the autograph. Right. So I always made an opportunity for other people to get that autograph and to meet these artists, you know, and to, and then and for the artists to sell some merch. Because yeah. that's a really important part of the business aspect to be able to sell your merch, you know. So I drafted for the merchandise. Every It was a win-win for everybody. And the last thing I would always say was, and next... It's King Ivier and Jaw Warrior Shelter High Five. <laughs> we had DJs in between sets, yeah. and they never got a blight. No one ever said who they were, and they'd start playing, and no one knew who they were. And yeah, no, I, I, saw, I saw that happen a few times. I was always that MC that went and found out who's the next DJ, Yeah, and then at Reggae on the River, after I did this, you know, you're, 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 like, you're, reading you're reading my playbook. You're reading my playbook. I mean, that's how you do it, yeah. you know, and yeah. I, I'm not doing this for me, and I'm not saying I'm the greatest, and I'm all egotistical yeah. about this. I am a vessel and a mouthpiece for the most part, <laughs> and it's an abomination to the gift that Jock gave me mm -hmm. for me not to be functioning on my highest level and to do everything I can to give honor and love respect to every single person who is putting energy and love into what they're doing, and so... 
you know, I I was the DJ's best friend. The selectors loved me because I call them out. Yeah. And then when I go on, then when I go to bring the next act on, first thing I say was, "What do you say yeah, for Jaw Warrior yeah. Shelter High Five yeah, from absolutely. you know the dub plate champions from the Bay Area? That's yeah. King Air. Have yeah. you ever seen anything like that? What do you say? You yeah. know, and just do just do it. Killer proper, vibes. You know what I mean? And, and Killer. It doesn't take that much energy to do it right. Right. It really doesn't. It takes it doesn't. a little bit of thought. And, you know, bands would always say, where did you get all that information about me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I your bio. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Blake. And I'm like, it's, duh. Who doesn't? If you're going to introduce an, art, an artist and you didn't read their bio, what's your deal? You know, like, what are you doing up there? And nowadays, Carlos, I can just pull it up on my phone. Yeah. But back then, I would get the list of who I would be emceeing, mm-hmm. and I would research, and I'd print it out at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd, you know, driving from Gonjarado mm-hmm. to California 24 hours to Reggae on the River, dude, I'd be reading those files, I'd be making my little notes, and right. always have my note cards as an MC. I've got note cards to remind myself of what I'm going to say, and I'd write these introductions, you know, using their song Sick. titles as the introduction to the band, and... A lot of these things I learned from Tommy Cowan, yeah, you know, and greatest. some of the big MCs in Jamaica, you know, the greatest. And I was, I was in the crowd watching them keenly and paying yeah. attention, you know. And so when it came my time, I just took everything that I had seen, learned, and experienced, and just tried to take it to the next level. I love, I love and Tommy was, Cowan. Was, I love Tommy Cowan's MC. Yeah, he's, still to this day, I use his line, "Yes, indeed," all the time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no, he was a man, dude. And, like, you go to Reggae Sunflash and Tommy Cowan's up there. You're like, this is it, mm-hmm. dude. Like, this is what I came here for. And, you so know, all those chiller. trips to Jamaica really schooled me on stage show and presentation of the music. And, you know, when I saw women fainting when Dennis Brown came on stage at Reggae <laughs> Sunflash in 87, yeah. I was like, man, I remember when my sister, my older sister, all her friends were fainting over the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, we need this reggae. We need this in reggae in America. Yeah. You know, we need women to be fainting when, you know, Romaine Virgo hits the stage. Right. Like, how do we build that? Well, you've seen, they, 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 they go crazy you know? for Dexter Daps. You've seen that. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Where it's just manic, where they're trying to rip his clothes off of him and Absolutely. stuff. I'm like, that's what I want to see. Yeah. I want to see the crowd completely maul the artists. They're like, don't say that. And I'm like, no, I do, dude. I want to rip you apart, bro. <laughs> so fun. So fun, so and then fun. The, and, 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 and so to bring it to modern times, here it is 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, my reggae show, The Heartbeat is On, continues every Friday night on KDUR out of Durango. I'm on from 5 to 7 Cali time, and it's a 6 to 8 mountain time, and I always post my shows on my next cloud site, Rasta Stevie's Heartbeat of Zion. Okay. And my mission in, the, in music today, Carlos, is to play all of the new music. Our station is a college station. Mm-hmm. We focus on new music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I bring the latest, greatest music. A lot of it, thanks to Ross Danny, who feeds my, fills my cup every strong. Crazy you know, good. Crazy good. Songs, Big up crazy, Ross Danny. Crazy. So much music. Dude. Um, it's so hard. much music. So little time. Just barely getting through it now. I can't keep up. <laughs> Just, no, I can't keep up with all that, man. I miss so many gems. I miss so many gems, but I do my best. Yeah, and every show, I mean, everything I'm playing, just I got this strong. I very seldom play anything that's even from the strong before or last month. It's like wicked, you know. I'm just Love it. I'm, super I'm just, fresh. I'm up to the time, and yeah. because Carlos, I remember in the '80s when everybody hated dance hall. Yeah, they hated swing ting. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Saul was this dance hall guy, and where's the rock and all this? And it was like. Yeah. 
dude, that music just, you know, took me over. Like, oh, yeah. I have never been in a year of reggae music where I wasn't absolutely excited about all the amazing releases. And I hear this, and I've been hearing this since the 80s. Oh, reggae's not what it used to be. There's no good songs now. There's no good reggae anymore. And I'm like, you haven't heard you're, anything. You're just not paying attention. Mm, yeah. You know, when Chronics and Protege and Tabaka hit, you know, I was like, are you even listening? Mm, yeah. Do you know what's going on, you know? Yeah. And then, like, you know, sounds like Dog Warrior Shelter and stuff like that were playing all these tones, you know, and they were doing all these mixtapes. And yeah. I was just eating that up like hot bread, you know, because yeah. I've never seen a time in reggae music where there wasn't a ton of music to get excited about. So my mission, if they want to hear Burning Screen and Vibration, turn on your, you know, turn on your CD or go to your Spotify or your other Bumble Quad and or whatever. Yeah. But if you want to hear what's latest and you want a personality with your show, okay. tune into the Heartbeat of Zion. Tune into the Radio DJ. So my latest project, Carlos, and you're on it, is okay. the Reggae Radio Roadmap. Okay. And this is just a kind of a thing. That I'm always doing something to give to the music. Okay. So now I'm creating this Reggae Radio Roadmap so that people can... It's a digital age, so now people can listen to Spliff Skankin on John Music, and they can listen to Carlos Culture on your show, yeah. and they can listen to uh, David Rodigan. They can listen oh, to Blood wicked. Pressure out of KGNU. So all these and that's on your website, your Facebook. Where is that? Where is that ra uh, radio it's, roadmap? Uh, it's just a, it's just at the beta stage, as they would say. It's just okay. now starting. But Sister Irie from Austin, Texas, is going to help I. Okay. And we're going to create a Facebook page called Reggae Roadmap. It's not ready yet. Okay. I've got the Sunday one tight, so okay. the Sunday one's good. And it's not like I'm selecting and leaving out any other yeah. DJs. I'm just finding as many as I can. Yeah, working with what you and see. Listing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm going to Spotify, I mean, not Spotify, I'm going to Spinatron and pulling up rate and pulling up set list, mm -hmm. and then finding the DJ, and like, I found this chick in Alaska, and mm -hmm. I found these chicks out of Toronto, and so I'm Killer. just doing my due diligence to find whoever I can, whether it's Ross Charles out of Palomar College, or whoever, I'm just yeah. doing everything I can to find all the radio shows, Chuck Foster, and you got to check out this girl, you got to check out this girl called um, Miss Lulu. Miss Lulu, L U L. She's a, she's killer. She's killer. She's really good. Where's she? Young girl. She's out of Tijuana. Okay, is that? And what's the name of that station? Um, I don't know her exact stuff. If you have trouble finding it, I'll, I'll get it for you. But she puts. She, I'll find she, it. She's she's really really good. And she plays vinyl, yeah, of new stuff. Oh, she's good. really good. She's really good. She definitely check her out. So that's in the future. Well, so your regular roadmap. Look at the what. Yeah, the, the reggae radio roadmap, and that's something so that people like I and I who love this music and want to hear a live DJ. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, people, you know, sometimes give me a like, let the music play, Ross. You're always talking over the music, mm -hmm. and I do that on purpose because back in the day when I was trying to coach, mm -hmm. um, you know, Doug went show and play some of his songs on my radio show, and he would tag it so I couldn't play it, and I'm like, ha, ha, ha. Mm -hmm. So I've taken up that thing to where I tag it all the time, dude. I'm constantly mm -hmm. tagging every tune. Mm -hmm. And... When I play it, I say it. Yeah. People need to know who they're hearing. Absolutely. And they need to hear it before, and they need to hear it afterwards. I try to, I call it, they call it back announce. I try to forward John announce yeah. of everything that you heard. Yeah. You know, and I tell, and I, and I try to keep my radio audience, just so they hear the names. Mm -hmm. They just need to get familiar with the names. And since it's all new music, there's a lot of names they've never heard of, and I just keep throwing the names out there. And, and you know, so the reggae radio roadmap is for heads. Okay. Reggae heads that want to hear a radio show with personality, you know, where they're, where they're, where they're, 
you know, either Live teaching person. about Rastafari or teaching about the music. They have something to say. You know what I mean? I hear what you're and, saying. And music, it, it, it gets you excited. You know, something exciting and new and, and, a, and a fresh mix. And, a, and, it, and, it, and the radio is one of those things, Carlos, that it exists in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's there. Yeah. And then it's gone. And it's free. All you have to do is turn your dial to 91.9 and you get this signal of jazz iration like coming through your car stereo or coming through your home stereo. It's That's mystical. The best. That's the best. That's the way the, the radio works, you know? Yeah, it's man. like, and it doesn't have a face to it. Yeah. So people create this. So I come with a blank palette. This great, this blank palette. And I paint it with red, green, and gold and all these beautiful colors mm-hmm. that you can't see. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. painting a picture that you can't see. Yeah. And so in your mind, you create what Rasa Phoebe looks like. Yeah. And then when they hear me talking in the grocery store and they turn around and they go, I know that voice. And I, and I go, yeah. And they go, are you Rasa Phoebe? And I said, well, of course. I'm just and then red, green, and go with dress down in my waist. And I'm like, well, of course I am. And they go, wow. I didn't think you looked like that. And I don't say, well, what do you think I look like? You know, I don't even go there, but... It just shows the power of radio. And, and for me, you know, you never know who's listening, Carlos. <laughs> right. And so we as radio DJs, we do show after show after show. And sometimes it can kind of be like, you know, why am I doing this? Is anybody even listening? Like, you know, why do I keep doing this? And then, you know, someone will come up to you on the street and, and say, you know, I've been playing your radio show in my home every Friday night with my children. Mm-hmm. And my kids grow up with this reggae culture. And I'll ask him something, you know, like, you know, are you going to do a sleepover with Johnny this weekend? <laughs> they go, John Willing, Mommy. <laughs> you know, these little five-year-olds and eight-year-olds, like, report to their parents with Rastafari lingo. And that's where I know that I'm penetrating and I'm reaching the people. Because yes, this I. is not just a music, it's a culture. Yeah. It's, not just, uh, it's not just entertainment, it's liberty. Yeah, man. And in that cultural liberty, I and I can really have a strong impact on the next generation. We sure. is, I'm turning 60 this year, Carlos. So man. those of us that are in, you know, have reached elder status, we're doing our thing. We're going to continue to do our thing. But we've been really um, terrible stewards of the earth. We've been extremely negligent in thinking seven generations in the future for every decision that we make. Okay. And in these times... Jah has put us in timeout. Okay. And now Jah has put us in, we've been grounded. Okay. So I'm from Texas. First you get put in timeout, mm-hmm. then you're grounded. And if you still don't get the message, Jah pulls out the belt and whips you, whether your parents do. Right. And so I'm just hoping that in these times of, of transition and transformation, mm-hmm. that we don't get so misguided that Jah has to pull out the belt and whip us. Yeah. We're already in timeout. We've already been grounded. Now's an opportunity for the conscious souls of the world to unite under the banner of love, truth, and positive optimism and create what we want for the future. And if those of us in the older generation have failed, one thing we're never going to fail is in teaching the youth. That's so sure, I always go to teach the youth right and never put up a fight. The Jimmy Cliff song, you know, that has so much impact on the eye in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can have any impact on the youth of tomorrow to open up their minds to how we got to where we got and ask them to please do something positive for the world, then that's the greatest 
gift that I can bring that's to the, the world greatest, right that's now. The greatest, that's the greatest. That's the greatest. That's the greatest. Period. Thank <laughs> you for a blind. You know, thank yeah. you for a blind. And the, your house is on fire. You better act quick. You know, and those kind of messages from you, they're really encouraging. And I just, Carlos, I just don't believe that the world is full of all this negative hate and clueless people and Trump supporters and all this. I think that they're a really strong vocal minority. I really believe that the majority of the planet are heart-space people. Totally. I used to work in Indonesia. I've traveled the world. I've been to Africa. I've been to Europe. I've been all over Asia, South, uh, Central America, all over our great country, Canada. And in my travels around the world, I find that people are people. And we're all just wanting to have food on our table. We want to have a... a, a a nice home to live in with clean air and clean water. Yeah. We want to give our kids a chance to have something that we never had. And yeah. we want a little free time to enjoy ourselves. And yeah. I don't care if I'm in Botswana or Bali or Bombay or Brooklyn. Yeah. All the people of the world all have that same commonality. Yeah. And if we can all unite in the commonality, get over the racism, get over the classism, get Black over the Blacker would say solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity with the people. It doesn't matter what name you call. You know, I know that everyone's roster, but they may call it at a different name, and that's fine. We all have yeah. our expressions. Yeah. But it's all one love, and it's all the word of Jah. For sure. And we, if we can just stop our separation and respect our Muslim brothers and respect our Buddhist brothers and respect our Hindu brothers and respect our fundamentalist Catholic brothers, you know, yeah. and respect our Trump supporters and respect everyone because yeah. in, we're all human. And right. You know, when the day comes where we can dash away all of our differences and celebrate all our similarities is when Jaws Garden of Flowers can be the most bountiful, beautiful garden. And these are the times, people, right now. These are, these are, it's always judgment time. But these are times where the energy is amplified. And I'm calling out at everybody who's listening to, to you know, Bob Radio San Diego right now with Rasa Stevian Carlos Culture. Mm -hmm. I beg you all to please focus on the positive. Do something in these times of in time out and grounded to better yourself. Don't fall prey to the fear. Instead, focus on the love. This is an opportunity to be the best that you can be. And if all of us were acting in our best honor and abilities, what a wonderful world it could be. And now we've slowed down the times, the air's a little cleaner, you know, yep. economic times are going to be rugged, I'm telling you, it's not a pretty sight, I'm not, I'm not you know, right. saying it's not hard, Yeah. but what all do we have? The only thing we really have is love, yeah. you know, and it starts within love of the self, yeah. and love of your family, love of your community, and love of the world, and the more love we can bring right now, you know, turn off your electronic devices, take a break from the screen, spend some time outdoors, you know, look within yourself. Take some time to meditate. Take some time to share with your brothers and sisters and, and create this as an opportunity for love and growth and overstanding of the people. And if we can do that, then I think we've done the best that we can do. And that's all I ask of everybody is do the best you can do. That's all we can do. And we, and we uh, you, we have been using this vehicle of reggae music to push that message for the longest time. So that's not new to us. And you hear the lyrics of reggae now, like a lot of people are dropping a lot of the foundation music right now, Carlos. And yeah. man, are those messages hitting hard now. They are. Oh they my are. God. They, Crazy. They're, they're more imperative and important now than ever. Yeah. And you really see how, you know, the Apple Gabriels, the Joseph Hills, mm -hmm. the Bunny Whalers, that they're super prophetic and, oh, and, yeah. and delivering proverbs. 
gladiators. Yeah. They were talking about, you know, you hear all that stuff, you know, the world is in trouble, Dennis Brown. Yeah. I mean, D. Brown sang that in the 80s, you know. The oh. world was in trouble. But Earth crisis, I mean, just like almost textbook. Listen to the words. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, reggae music has always been the next testament. Yes. The lyrics in reggae music, you have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Next Testament. And Rastafari is writing the words, not necessarily in a book, but on our hearts. And it's through the liberty of our manifestation as humans on earth, where we function from the heart, not from writs and rights, but a functioning of the heart is how we're writing the Next Testament. And then, you know, if you're not sure what the game, the, the playbook is, listen to the words of, the, of our predecessors, of the ancients. Yeah. of these sufferers that came through the slavery and the racism and were inspired enough to take a risk to put together this music called reggae, which was originally the sufferers' music. It's the town crier. Yeah. Reggae yeah. music is an expression of social culture and what's going on in the day. I mean, look how many Corona songs there are right now. Yeah. You know, reggae music is always on the tip and always spreading what is going on in the world through song. And, sure. what, and even though those elders have, are no longer on the earth plane, their songs live on forever. And those messages are there for inspiration of the people. Decades in the future, people are still going to get inspiration for that music. And that's the power of reggae music in Rastafari. You know, that's amazing. That's beautiful. I'm going to leave it right there. The power of Rastafari. Stevie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for all you've done in the... 35 years plus in radio and even beyond that um, and all your future works and uh, you know more success and you know keep on spreading your bounds and uh, expanding your horizons and um, with reggae music and we just love all the work you've been doing and that's why you wanted to talk to you yes I will I appreciate the opportunity Carlos to reach the people here on Bob Radio San Diego and I want to let you guys know that you've got a bona fide Don Carlos culture who's been in the game a long time he's a man of consciousness and integrity and his drive and and uh, attunement to the reggae music to bring it to the people is unparalleled and I want to big up Makeda Dread also as a foundation member of the San Diego scene and, and you know San Diego is like the reggae capital of America right now and of the world you know so much bands move to San Diego to become famous as reggae bands and that says a lot about the work that you've done Carlos and you know whether it's Winston's or the Belly Up or any of the you know, classic venues you guys have there. Mm-hmm. Y'all been there from the beginning. You're there now, and your works are being paid <laughs> off. So massive respect going out to Bob Radio San Diego, Carlos Culture, and all the reggae-loving people. Y'all love and blessings to each and every one of you. Beautiful. All right. Cool. Mom, looks like your car is running great. Oh, I just filled up at Arco. Did you know it maximizes engine protection? How so? Well, it uses a blend of additives to prevent unwanted gunk. So I guess seeing is believing. How can you see Arco gas? It's an expression. Uh, Does your fuel tank have a little window or something? You don't actually... But you just said seeing is believing. I'm so confused. Me too. What color is gas anyway? Probably a nice lavender. Arco maximizes engine protection. Requires continuous use based on ASTM D6201 engine testing for intake valve deposits.